Alright, so we're here in beautiful Long Island, New York. Strong Island, New York. Um, doing a podcast with uh, Anthony Ma. Um, the article today is titled Teaching Non-Normative Bodies, Simulating Visual Impairments as Embodied Pedagogy in Action. Um, it's authored by Anthony Ma, uh, Dean Williams, and Andrew Sparks uh, in Sport Education and Society, just 2019. Um, this came up on Twitter and saw that and um, it was an interesting uh, connection and I haven't actually met Anthony before uh, we saw each other at ICEP this week. Um, we also have uh, Kevin Richards and Aaron Santeo here uh, kind of tag teaming some questions. So um, thank you very much for coming in and uh, taking over Mara Manson's office at Adelphi University. <laughs> Um, but let me let me just ask you about this article. You you start with um, talking about the importance of physical education pre-service teachers to have this hands-on experience with working with children and with disabilities and in special school-based placements. Can you just start off and can you describe what what special school-based placements are? How they're different from working with disabilities in a regular school setting? Yeah, of course. Um, thanks very much for the invitation, by the way. Big fan of the podcast. Um, listen to it on my drives to and from work and use it as a resource with my students. Awesome. Um, so thanks for the invitation. <coughs> It'd be quite useful for the listeners, perhaps for those outside the UK, to get a sense of what teacher ed involves in the UK, mm -hmm. particularly in relation to placements and where special school placements might be situated yeah. in that respect. So what we generally do, and the teacher education landscape has changed quite a lot over the last decade or so and that's aligned to government priorities <clears throat> but essentially what we used to have was a system in which you would do a four-year undergraduate degree mm -hmm. and after that four-year degree you would be conferred with what we call qualified teacher status so you'd be a qualified teacher you could go into schools you could teach PE mm -hmm. But the government changed the system slightly and now they ask that you do a relevant undergraduate degree. So from a PE perspective that could be an undergraduate degree in PE. It could be sports coaching, sports development, sports management, sport and exercise science. Mm -hmm. Anything more or less that you can justify is related to physical education. Yeah. And then you do a one year top up postgraduate qualification. Mm -hmm. So, so now it's, it's a four plus one? It's a three plus one. Okay. So it's still over a four year period. Uh -huh. It's just that more or less you don't have to assign to a teacher ed qualification from year one, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and as part of that one year top up, you have two placements in schools um, and they're 12 weeks each. And every time it's always a mainstream school, two mainstream or regular schools. What do you mean by mainstream schools? So regular schools, that's what we call mainstream like schools. Public, public yes, school? okay, yes. Yeah. Like integrated schools, right? Where you have kids with disabilities and without. Yes, yeah. Um, so essentially that's what most students are exposed to. And in the UK we probably have, and again this is quite a political decision, between 20 to 25% of children in mainstream public schools who would be classified as having special educational needs and disabilities. Mm. But we still have a segregated education system in that we still have specialist special schools, and that's what we call them, special schools. 
um, for those children with perhaps the most profound and challenging mm -hmm. learning needs that mainstream schools just can't cater for. So, but it sounds like a, a relatively large percentage of students with disabilities go to those special schools, or no? What we've seen over a period of time is there's this drive for integration and inclusion. Yeah. Yeah. But over the last 10 years or so, we're starting to turn away from that. So we're starting to see more investment in these special schools because of the perceived failure of integration. Is that if that makes sense? So in yeah. relation to a percentage breakdown, I couldn't say with any degree of accuracy a figure, but we're seeing a kind of ideological shift. I'd argue back towards special schools for some children who are just not catered for in mainstream schools. And there's a lot of public and academic debate about whether that's a mm. good thing or not. Because in the states, we're kind of doing the opposite still, where there's this push towards inclusion or integration or whatever the preferred term is yeah uh, and and there's there's a lot of federal legislation to, to back that up I see it's quite interesting I know I'm going slightly off topic yeah, no, um, but kind of the, the, there was a politician called Baroness Mary Warnock who kind of her her national kind of drive during the 70s was towards inclusion and that resu resulted in a lot of education acts legislative power to transfer children from special schools to mainstream schools and a lot of special schools closed but more recently she's more or less said that this system needs to be rethought mm -hmm. and again so there's been a, a bit of a political drive to to reinvest back in special schools and essentially what I'm saying is um, what happens in the UK the research suggests is that when our prospective teachers go into mainstream schools they're often kept away from the classes that have children with special needs in them. <coughs> so in other words, the first time they're properly exposed to some of the challenges and benefits associated with teaching children with disabilities is when they're qualified teachers in practice and they don't necessarily have the knowledge, skills, experience or confidence to teach these children. Mm. And there are loads of associated negative outcomes yeah. with that lack of preparation. And this is exactly what you and I were talking about earlier this week about not training our our students in the U.S. to work in low-income schools and yeah. not knowing how mm. to deal with fights or all these other things that happen. Yeah. And so I think it, it's very similar to probably what happens in not training, yeah. having your first experience be while you're the teacher. Yeah. Yeah, I mean in the states I don't think we do too much of a better job of that either though because a lot of uh, for a lot of uh, physical education pre-service teachers they'll have like one token class on mm. adapted physical education yeah. and then that's it. And then depending upon the state they may be qualified to teach students with disabilities coming right out of that undergraduate program. That's how it was in Indiana. So if you got a PE license in Indiana, at least when I was there, it doubled as an APE license and right. you could teach students with disabilities based on one course. So thinking about this lack of preparation, you discussed in your um, in the article about how like adults with disabilities, essentially there's research out there that they perceive their PE experiences in a negative way. Um, due to the exclusionary practices of mm. the PE teachers, as well as the lack of research kind of that there is on children with disabilities um, experiencing a positive embodied experience in PE. So could you just like talk a little bit about that literature yeah, um, basis for us? Yeah, of course. Well, 
I mean, first thing I think it's worth noting is there is some really good research being done in the UK. So Hayley Fitzgerald, Philip Vickerman, Janine Coates, Richard Medcalf, amongst others, are doing some quite innovative stuff about teacher ed, but also different ways of eliciting the voices of children with disabilities when it comes to their PE mm -hmm. experiences. But saying that, I actually think that the best work in this respect is being done in the United States, particularly those that are interested in adapted PE and adapted physical activity. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of um, you know, Justin Hagel, Martin Block, Sam Hodge, amongst many others, um, who I think are really driving this agenda forward. And I think scholars in the UK could learn a lot from what's going on in the States. Um, you know, because as an academic who's interested in this area, I often feel quite isolated in the UK uh, because we don't really have a strong network, research network of people who have a similar interest in this respect. But when it comes to the focus of the literature, um, I, I'm, many of the things have already been identified. Um, lack of preparation through teacher education, which is understandable given the competing pressures that teacher educators are put under to to meet different standards agendas um, and often inclusion and SEND is squeezed out of any teacher ed curriculum. Um, you know there's instances of kind of peer led exclusion particularly during team games and competitive activities yeah. where children typically developing children in mainstream schools don't pass to the kid with a disability and often that's based on perceptions of ability rather than actual ability. Um, there are issues to do with the support mechanisms that are put in place in the UK, the resourcing of inclusion in the UK, you know, obviously because we've gone through a, a, an extended period of, of austerity like many other countries have been through. And one of the first things that's squeezed when it comes to, to kind of provision is often SEND in schools. So, -E uh, sorry, special educational needs and disabilities. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, so in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same here, we use the term learning support assistant, but that's essentially a paraprofessional yeah. or a teaching assistant. Um, and again, there's a lot of research focusing on the ways in which those type of people can be used as a support mechanism to facilitate inclusion. But again, what we're seeing is those jobs are being slashed, the pay is being suppressed, um, professional development opportunities for those type of professionals are, are more or less non-existent now. So are, just as a kind of sidebar, are those well-paid jobs in the UK? Are they lower paid or like really badly paid or? I mean, it's all relative, isn't it, in that, um, you know, there was a time in my life where I would have thought that was a well-paid job, now I don't. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so some of my early research was on those support mechanisms and working with teaching assistants. And yeah, the, the pay is really poor. Uh, the professional d development opportunities are, are non-existent. There's so many instances of those teaching assistants having to pay for their own professional development courses. Um, there's a distinct lack of kind of career progression so there are different levels in the UK of TA um, but particularly now it's mm -hmm. difficult to move up that system yeah. hmm. so what did you do um, why did you do this specific research study can you kind of give the purpose and the kind of background for this 
Yeah, sure. So it's it's all born out of the idea of trying to solve a problem. I'm not always the biggest fan of problem-based research, but a lot of the stuff I do when it comes to uh, children with disabilities is trying to solve a problem. Teachers are inadequately prepared. Um, PE teachers for teaching children with disabilities. And I'm always interested in exploring different ways of how we might better prepare them. So some of the research I'm presenting today kind of relates to the influence of placement in a special school on the professional development of PE teachers or prospective PE teachers. Um, and that's a, that's a rich way of gaining the hands-on experience. But the problem in the UK is that there's still far too few special schools. The special schools that are in the locality, often it's difficult to quali quality assure the P that's offered, and that's a separate issue. So in other words, when that option is not available or to complement that option, one of the things that I've tried to do is use, in this instance, the simulation of a disability to try and embody a disability for pedagogical learning. Mm -hmm. And that's simply a case of, and it's a bit more complicated, putting on a blindfold, being in a physical education space, mm -hmm. trying to move through that physical education space in relation to the moving bodies of others, trying to participate in different learning activities while simulating a visual impairment, and then trying to teach others who are simulating a visual impairment, as well as others who aren't, as a way of trying to replicate a so-called inclusive lesson yeah. where the bodies of people with and without visual impairments are interacting with each other. So you had these as pre-service teachers in, go ahead. Let me, uh, yeah. just a clarification on the language. Um, so what, again, what's happened in the UK, cause that one year teacher ed, that mm -hmm. top up is so congested and inclusion more or less is not focused at all. What I've argued for is some of these issues to start to seep into undergraduate three-year programs because we've got them for longer we've got a bit more time to work with them to try and upskill the, mm -hmm. these prospective teachers so they're not pre-service teachers because they're not training to be a teacher mm -hmm. they aspire to be a teacher is that yeah. if that makes yeah, sense yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's just kind of it's like a wannabe different yeah yeah it's yeah, a yeah. wannabe teacher who's not doing a teacher ed program because as mm -hmm. some of our students exit our degree and go on to do sport and community development jobs they go on to do relevant occupations after that initial after three that year initial degree. three years so this this population that we're in this in this study talking about they're in that three year they are program. and they want to be PE teachers okay. Whether they end up being PE teachers is obviously a different yeah. question entirely. Yeah. Um, so can you explain the, the, the study? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, what we did, and this was part of our curriculum anyway, so what we wanted to do is get a sense of what, if at all, influence it was having. And I don't use the word impact intentionally. Um, so essentially what we did was we, uh, two teacher educators, myself and Dean, Dean Williams, um, who kind of developed and facilitated the learning activities. We kept reflective diaries over a period of time, um, and that spanned the entire process. Um, that isn't captured in the article. So that was the development of this embodied curriculum, the development of the module from the outset through the entire process. Um, we kept reflective diaries, and we interviewed 
informally interviewed the students in groups based on their experiences of this embodied curriculum, mm -hmm. the simulation. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of how the data was generated for the research. Um, I, I don't have the numbers to hand, but basically it was, a, it, it was the, more or less the entire cohort mm -hmm. of, of students. Um, and then we analysed the data and to represent the data in what we consider to be a more evocative way, we used snapshot vignettes um, to try and draw readers in to get a sense of what was happening in that space at the time. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what that embodied curriculum looked like? Um, for the students, so um, obviously they had a blindfold, and but can yeah. you you talked about like phase one and phase two yeah. kind of in the study? Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So, so for a lot of these students, it was the first time they'd ever ever done that, and we were always cognizant of that fact. Um, so, in firstly, we got them to put the blindfold on to feel what it was like, because obviously we're very ocular centric beings. We use our eyes a lot. So we wanted to put the blindfold on and just get them used to wearing the blindfold and then moving through space very slowly while they wore the blindfold. Then we assigned teaching assistants, someone to support, so we put them in pairs. And we got we encouraged them. So we, we tried to scaffold the lens, but we didn't want to be too prescriptive because mm. we wanted them to explore the space in different ways that they deemed appropriate and we wanted them to use different pedagogical strategies. So we wanted the ideas to come from them. Um, and we suggested to them, we want you to move more quickly through space. And we want your partner to think about different ways to help you to move more quickly through space without hitting other moving bodies and without hitting the wall or walls. <laughs> yeah, so health and safety was important. Um, so the, and then we, we observed the different pedagogical strategies that the students used to try and help these bodies to move through space. So they used touch as a pedagogical tool, different types of touch. Mm -hmm. So hands on shoulders, hands on elbows, holding hands, the posi where they position themselves. Um, and these, so we give them no guidance on a strategy. We just ask them to experiment with different strategies. And then we observed and make n made notes, and we encouraged them to change directions, move at different paces in different di directions, and at different levels. Um, so that was the first part of it. Mm -hmm. Trying to remember now. Um, and then we, then we kind of moved that into different learning activities. So, a dribble during basketball, a pass and drill during football. And we got them to think of how different models or different tools. So we have the inclusion spectrum in the UK. I don't think it's used over here. And that's more or less how to modify, adapt and differentiate a learning activity to make it more inclusive. Mm -hmm. How to change the space, the, ta the task, the equipment and the role of participants. Um, so we asked them to do, a, let's say, a pass and drill to see how it was without any modification or adaptation. Then we asked them to discuss how it might be modified and adapted to make it more inclusive for the people simulating the visual impairments. Then we asked them to have a go with of those um, modifications and adaptations. Yeah. Was there, um, was it completely like blacked out, blindfold, or was it kind of like, did you impair vision fully or? 
Yeah. Partially or? So we started off with the full blindfold so you could see nothing. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to do was start to challenge student perceptions of visual impairment. Because I think oculocentric people often think of visual impairment as absolute blindness, mm -hmm. can see zero. So we also had different um, simulation glasses that mm -hmm. simulate different types of <coughs> visual impairment, uh, like cataracts and yeah. you know, things like that. Um, so glasses were also introduced. Okay. Um, yeah. And then discussions were constructed about whether those initial strategies for absolute blindness were suitable for different types of mm -hmm. visual impairments. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what were the results of the study? What did you find? Okay. Um, one the So, in the paper, we talk a lot, and this, this stems into other research that I've done in the past about this idea of the authenticity of visual impairments and the extent to which normative bodies can step into the shoes of non-normative bodies. Um, I'm more or less, yeah, I'm not entirely convinced, I'm not entirely convinced that a person without a visual impairment can empathise mm -hmm. at an effective level with a person with a visual impairment. Right. Because there's so many nuanced differences, it's situational, it's contextual, our lived embodied experiences are so different. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at conceptually at the moment when it comes to the idea of empathy and the extent to which you can develop this type of empathy through use of simulation. But at the same time, I do think there are benefits from these simulations particularly in relation to what our students learn pedagogically. Um, so there were things like there was notable growth in relation to the extent to which they used rich verbal descriptions of contexts and activities because obviously in PE we use a lot of demonstrations which are completely redundant for particularly for children with severe visual impairments. Um, there was, I would argue, a lot of learning in relation to the use of touch as a pedagogical tool mm -hmm. and different types of body pedagogies. And I'm not sure if it's the same in the States, but we're going through a bit of a situation at the, at the moment, particularly because of safeguarding issues mm -hmm. where touch as a pedagogical tool is starting to be kind of, it's getting ostracized and alienated. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of stigma attached to it, yeah. which, I think is problematic, particularly when working with children with visual impairments, where things like tactile modelling is extremely important and a useful form of pedagogy. We had uh, Valeria Varea on mm. about a paper that she did, which was interesting about touch in a Latin culture in right. Spain, which is she calls like a, this touchy culture. Then that was spilling over, and uh, I think Tim Fletcher did. I want, I want to say it was him, but that did a similar paper, and right. I remember reading that, you know, coming from a wrestling coaching background, yeah. which you cannot teach without yeah. physically touching and helping, yeah. and now being, you know, hands off and us teaching students fist bumps and side hugs yeah. and all these things, and it's it's a it's a strange situation I can understand in yeah. adapted physical education specifically working with you know special needs populations that must be 
even even more mm. so. Yeah. And so, I think yeah. one of the activities here is that we're struggling with at the moment, and others might degree is things like gymnastics, which is still really popular in the UK, really popular in schools, but such is absolutely essential for pedagogical purposes yeah. in gymnastics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you think the PE teachers and the um, you know the teacher educators can learn from from this specific study? Well, this ties ties to a wider point. I think we don't want to exaggerate the potential of simulations in relation to what what they can do. Um, and one thing I do put put in the paper, and I think it ties to a broader debate about the ethics of this is I think it's quite problematic and this did come through our data and this is actually the second paper we've done on simulation and embodied pedagogy and it came through the other paper as well is that situations did arise where the students kind of started to talk in a way where they it felt like they thought it knew they knew what it was like to have a visual impairment based on using these simulations and they started to use quite judgmental language about what they think the lives of children and adults with visual impairments involve and I think that's really really problematic mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the potential pitfalls of using simulations because there is a rich history of people without disabilities talking for and acting on behalf of people with disabilities and that's one of the things that does concern me about simulations and I have taken a bit of a battering about simulations because of those issues which I completely understand and which I try to explain in both articles so that's the first thing um, but I do I do think there's scope for teacher education programs and even professional development programs for in-service teachers that can use different types of simulations for for learning about pedagogy and mm -hmm. the development of pedagogical strategies for working with children with different mm -hmm. types of disabilities mm -hmm. and then obviously the paper focuses on some of the pedagogical learning um, based on simulating visual impairments but we've done stuff on simulation the simulation of um, osteo I always say this wrong. It's basically brittle bone disease, mm -hmm. osteogenesis imperfecta. Mm -hmm. um, but get, again, going back to the ethics, because that's one of the ways I want to build on this paper, I also think that ethical issues, not only in how you use simulation and the claims you make about it, but the type of disabilities that you simulate. Yeah. So I've heard horror stories, for example, of people asking others to act like they have ADHD. Mm -hmm or act like they have yeah um, and obviously that's really really problematic yeah. for many reasons yeah. Yeah. Um, so some uh, ethically a bit more sound to simulate and arguably a bit more authentic to simulate than others but again I still think this is a really grown a grown body of literature and there's some of the things that we need to to get a better sense yeah. of yeah and I, I always felt strange in my primary methods class though those mostly generalist teachers learning how to teach physical education so it was the first time they heard about adapted physical education at all and we um, we ran that and I 
you know, I simulated certain impairments, mm. but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm going, is this enough? Like, are they actually getting this? Or is, you know, having a wheelchair during an activity, are they kind of using it as like, oh, I haven't ever been in a wheelchair and this is really cool. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Yes. And instead of that. And you know, we did goal, goal ball yep. as an activity. And I feel like that was, you know, that was really interesting for them. And then it showed this more of like this Paralympic style of sport yep. that you can, you can use. And it's completely, you know, the completely blacked out ones, the goggles and yeah. But yeah, I always second guess myself. I'm like, is doing this like simulation worth it? Mm. Is it enough? Is it, is it like totally incorrect to just say, you know, I, I need you to, you know, simulate a moving impairment by yeah. pinching a basketball in between your legs and not being able to move and trying to then put you into a full sided game and yeah. having you talk about your experience. Well, um, not to publicise another another article, but the one I mentioned about uh, about OI osteogenesis imperfecta, that that study was different in that it involved two different phases. The first of which involved a student with OI who was a pre-service teacher, and this was conducted in Spain, um, and it was more or less about the relationship between the teacher educator and that prospective student and those two working together to come up with pedagogical solutions. So that was phase one and quite and I, I think this is quite interesting what makes it different. And that student with OI was actively involved in the construction of the simulations for the students who followed in the uh, previous year. If that makes sense. So it was yeah. a co constructed process. Yeah. Um and that's that ties into some of the additional research that I want to do on the ethics of it. To talk to people with visual impairments, to ask them about simulations, the ethics of it, if at all it can and should be done, mm-hmm. and if it can or should be done, how it should be done. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Especially when I think about my own positionality as a person without a disability. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's some important work to be done. Definitely. So, uh, thank you so much. Uh, The article, again, can be found in Sport Education Society uh, from 2019. Um, Can you just, uh, how can people find more information on your work? Are you a Twitter handle? Yes, Twitter. Um, I've I've previously been too engaged in Twitter over the last year or so. So, my handle is, oh, I'm not sure. We can link to it. Yeah, I'll link to it. It's it's Mar M A H E R A J. Yeah, that's the handle. All right. Yeah, yeah. we'll link handle. to that. Yeah. Link to the article itself as well. And uh, and thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it.